One of Francis Schaeffer's most well-known works was entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. And that could very well be the title for this morning's lesson in the book of Hebrews. As we read the opening lines, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. These opening words affirm that God has indeed revealed himself to the pinnacle of his creation, which is mankind. He's not only there, as a, a deistic God would have been. He's not silent, which is one of the characteristics of a theistic God. Christians are theistic rather than deistic. De a deistic God is one who is there, who created everything, and then was silent. He created the world, but he didn't reveal himself to the world. So a, a deist, and there aren't many deists anymore, but a deist wouldn't really know how to be rightly related to God. So just innately, they would think that they need to be good enough to try to rightly relate to a God who is there. But we're not deists, we're theists. A theistic God reveals himself to his creation. And a theistic God interacts with his creation. That's why we had a prayer time this morning. Because we can pray to a theistic God, a God who is infinite, and a God who is personal, and a God who loves you, and a God who cares about you. He didn't just create everything and then take a break or take a vacation. He created everything, and he still loves you and wants so much for you to love him. He's not going to make you love him, but he's going to do everything he can to try to attract you to himself. If we take out the parenthesis in the first couple of verses for just a moment, the text reads this way, God has spoken to us in his Son. While God has graciously revealed himself to us in his creation, this revelation is limited. I was talking to my Wyoming friend just a few moments ago about Muddy Mountain, which is behind Casper Mountain. Now, Muddy Mountain's not muddy. It's got trees on it just like every other mountain in Wyoming that I know of. But it's probably muddy because you can't get to it in the spring. But you, you've got to really work to get to Muddy Mountain. And one time I did, back in 1991, David was born. He had just been born in April. It was May. I needed a break. It was so much, it was so hard on me, the, the whole delivery thing. And, <laughs> and so I wanted to take a little time off. And Cindy graciously said, go. And so, <laughs> so I went to Wyoming. And, and it, it's just wonderful up there in the spring. And the mud was gone. And I went to Muddy Mountain. And it's just as quiet as it can be. There's not another human sound back there. Wyoming has, only has 400,000 people in the whole state. And it's a pretty large state. But once you get back up into the wilderness, there's nothing back there but God and his creation. There's nothing be standing between you to interrupt you with your interaction with God and his creation. And there's this canyon there. There's a dirt road. You can drive fairly close to the canyon. And then you can walk up. And I walked up. I'll never forget this incredible, beautiful May spring day. The sky was completely clear except for a couple really puffy white clouds. The temperature was probably about 60 degrees. You know, you not, don't really need a sweater, but you almost could use one. And I hiked up there and I sat right on the edge of that canyon. Not too close because I'm afraid of heights. I like heights, but I'm afraid to get too close to the edge. I sat almost right next to the edge and I just watched. And I watched as the eagles made their way from one end of that canyon to another. They just floated on the, the heat that was coming up from the bottom. Then they turn around and they come around and they float back. And I watched that, I don't know how long. It was the most wonderful thing. I'd still be there today if I wouldn't have run out of water and some Hostess cupcakes that I had brought with me that day. 
And I thought, isn't God great? It's really tough to be an atheist under those circumstances, to see what God has done, how, how, what, what God thinks of beauty and wonder. Another time of wonder, when, when you hold a very newborn baby in your hands, the wonder of a new life, the wonder of a being that God has imputed life. These are incredible things. God has graciously revealed himself to us through his creation, although it's limited. Now, a reasonable person would be forced to conclude after looking at nature, whether it's macroscopic or microscopic, that God does exist, that he's powerful and he's extremely smart. But outside of that, creation's revelation is somewhat limited. And interesting, the Apostle Paul writes in the first chapter of the book of Romans that there's enough revelation in nature that each of us should understand that God exists. There's enough there that God exists and creation must submit. There's enough there, but it's limited. Thankfully, God didn't limit himself to natural revelation. He also blessed us with what theologians call special revelation. And special revelation has two primary aspects. God's word, the Bible that you're holding in your, many of you are holding in your laps right now or maybe on your phone right now with some sort of application or your iPad, and his son. Now, he holds us accountable for natural revelation. He holds us accountable that there's enough information in nature to, for us to know that he does truly exist. And if that's the case, how much more accountable is he going to hold us for special revelation? Ben Witherington, New Testament scholar, writes concerning the opening of Hebrews. He said, our author stresses that revelation in the Son is not only superior to all previous ones, being a fuller representation of God's truth, but it's also the final and definitive such revelation. And, like any good whodunit, what happens at the end of the story is decisive for interpreting all that has come before. It's not then just a case of fulfilling earlier promises, but also going beyond any previous revelation. And this is the part I like. He said, what follows tries to establish not merely that Jesus fulfills previous hopes and promises, but that he surpasses previous forms of revelation. I want to say that again because that's germane to the message today. What follows tries to establish that, that not merely that Jesus fulfills previous promises, or previous hopes and promises, but that he surpasses previous forms of revelation. Only the Son is the exact representation of the being of God. God is pure spirit. No one has seen God at any time. But in Jesus, we see God. Jesus was the exact representation of God. A statement that cannot be made of anybody else. Now, we're to represent God to mankind. We have a responsibility to be ambassadors for Christ. When people see us, they should see something of God. And I hope they do when they see you. I hope they see something of the love of God when you interact with someone. But they're not going to specifically see God. But when Jesus was in your presence, you saw God. Now, you saw a human being. But you saw a human being that was also God. He is pure spirit. We haven't seen him, but we've seen Jesus. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. 
Now, you can't say that about anybody else. Take Mother Teresa. You say, well, I've seen Mother Teresa. Well, you've seen Mother Teresa. You've seen something of God in her. But you haven't seen God. We can take any of us. Take Chuck Swindoll. I've met Chuck Swindoll. He's one of the friendliest, nicest guys I've ever met. I mean, just full of laughter and joy. And you see something of God's joy in Chuck. But you haven't specifically seen God. You see something of, you see, you see the point. We, some, people see something of God through us. But when you saw Jesus, you saw God. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though he's making a case through us. And we have a responsibility to represent him well. But we're not the exact representation of God. He is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. When one observed Jesus, they observed God. And let me pause and, and tell you this. The reason the writer to the Hebrews started with this is that Jesus is the subject of the whole letter. The superiority of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus is the, is the theme of the whole letter. Just like in, Paul, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Jesus is creator, he's the sustainer, he's the savior, he's the head of the body, he's the head of the church, he's the firstborn of all creation, he's the firstborn from the dead. So therefore, remember what Paul said, he should come to have first place in everything in our lives. If he's all that, he should have first place in our lives. And the writer to the Hebrews is going to say something very, very similar. But then he's going to take it one step further. And he's going to issue five serious warnings in this letter. Five of the hardest passages in the New Testament to understand. Granted, but we're going to work through them piece by piece and unpack them slowly. And once we do, we'll get it, I think. But we'll see in these five warning passages, the writer to the Hebrews taking it one step further than Paul and saying, yes, Jesus is superior to all. He's worthy to be worshipped. Be careful of not worshipping him because there are consequences. See, be careful of taking Jesus too lightly. There are consequences. And if there ever was a book for our time or a letter for our time, this has to be it. Not only the whole thing, of course, but the book of Hebrews. Because the world takes Jesus much too lightly. The best the world does sometimes use his name as a curse word. You know what I mean. I don't see anybody stumping their toe and saying, Muhammad! <laughs> Buddha! No, but they do it with Jesus. Why? I wonder why. Because he's unique. People innately know it. They know they should receive him. They know Jesus is calling them. They've heard the story about Jesus dying for their sins. They know that verse that, that we all memorized as a child probably, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. They appreciate the tenderness of those words and the love that drips from that verse. And they see then we have to do something with it. Either we do what that verse says and we trust him to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, apart from any works that we might could do, we either receive him as our Savior. Now, now, we can't do anything. It's like receiving a gift. We either say, yes, Lord, I'm receiving that gift. I want it. Yes, I need it. Or we have to re repel him. You see, and it's in that rejection that this animosity comes. That's why the world has animosity toward Jesus. It's rejected Jesus. 
That's why they use his name as a curse word. They rejected him, and they know better. Sometimes we just need to get out of the way and receive God's gift. And it's not like sometimes you hear people, you know, sometimes you go to dinner with somebody, and, and they'll pick up the tab and say, here, at least let me get the tip. Can I get the tip? I'll get it next time. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to get it next time. There's not any next time. I've already paid the price. All you got to do is receive it. No, you can't pick up the tip either. I've already got that. Now what are you going to do? We've all been in that situation, haven't we? You know what you have to do? You just want to say thanks. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. That's all God wants us to do. When a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? You know what Paul said? He didn't say, I'll tell you what he didn't say first. He didn't say, you know, the first thing you need to do is apologize to me for the way you treated Silas, my buddy and me last night. It was a little rough. By the way, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to turn you in, to, I'm going to turn you in as soon as I get out of here for the way you treated me. You need to repent of all your sins. Everything you did wrong, you need to turn away from it right now. Paul knew that the Philippian jailer didn't have the power to do that. You know what he said? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's it. And somebody told me one time, that is way too easy. Way too easy. And I said, yeah, it is. I agree with you. It's way too easy. But it's easy for us because Christ did all the work. He did all the work. So all we have to do is receive the gift. We just have to say, thank you, Lord. I trust Jesus as my Savior. And then we have eternal life just like that. Taking the sentence as a whole once again, God... After he spoke long ago in the fathers and in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. In the past, God's special revelation was given in a variety of ways. But primarily, it came through prophets in the Old Testament times. What was given through these men was progressive revelation through servants of God to the people of God. Now, what I mean by progressive revelation, we can just take the, the doctrine of the seed of the woman, for example. The doctrine of the Savior, the truth about the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when this first comes about, all that we know through the writings of Moses is that there will be one day an offspring of a woman that will be perfectly righteous and conquer the seed of the serpent who will be evil. Now, that's all we have in the beginning. But then this seed doctrine, no, no pun intended, but this doctrine of the seed that is expanded and is progressively revealed as the scriptures unfold. Adam and Eve didn't know that the, the, the seed of the woman's name was going to be Jesus. In fact, all Adam and Eve knew was that the seed of the woman, the one that would come and solve the problem that they had created through their sin, would be a male offspring. So they thought that the seed of the woman was Cain. You can look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and you th Eve thinks that Cain is the seed of the woman. But Cain didn't turn out to be perfectly righteous, did he? He murdered his brother. And then things progress, and we find out in, in Genesis chapter 12, this great, incredible, benchmark chapter of the Old Testament, we find out that the seed of the woman is going to actually come through one family, Abraham's family. So it narrows it down. It's not everybody. It's not every male, the potential is not for every male offspring, but only Abraham or his family. People thought, well, Abraham is the seed of the woman then. He's the one that's going to come and solve the sin problem. 
And then we find out, well, Abraham wasn't quite perfectly righteous either. He was a great man. You have three faiths that recognize the greatness of Abraham, Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam. But he wasn't perfect. How do we know that? Well, the text tells us. Twice he tried to pass off his wife as his sister. I had a Jewish friend of mine tell me one time, he says, well, it was his sister. <laughs> well, it was, it was his half-sister. But he didn't do it to protect her. He did it to protect himself. And therefore, it was sinful behavior. And, and even pagan kings chastised him for it. So Abraham, while great, he wasn't perfect. Then time goes forward. Abraham, Isaac. Could it be Isaac? Isaac was the child of the promise. We know that. Was it Isaac? Well, no, Isaac had his failures as well. Jacob. Oh, surely it was Jacob then. No, it wasn't Jacob. He had his failures too. Well, Judah. We know that it's going to come through the line of Judah. We're told that. Was the seed of the woman Judah? Well, no, we find Judah and Tamar, the whole story of that. He, he was far from perfect. Well, then time goes on. And we meet a man that, at least at the beginning, people, I'm sure they thought he was the seed of the woman. It was David. David was anointed king at a very young age. He fought Goliath probably in his late teens, probably at the age right before he would have been conscripted into military service. If you do the chronology, David's probably 17 years old or so when he fights Goliath, maybe 16. At the, at the, at the, at the youngest, he'd be 16. When he stands out in front of Goliath, it says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? People had to look around and say, I wonder, this, this guy's from the tribe of Judah. I wonder if he is the seed of the woman. And then he goes out and defeats Goliath. He leads Israel. He's the king against which all other kings are rated until the king of kings, Jesus, comes. Maybe he's the seed of the woman. Maybe he's the promised Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ. Well, no, he messed up too, didn't he? And even non-Christians are familiar with his mess up or mess ups. So it wasn't David. The prophets didn't give us other information about the seed of the woman. Micah tells us he'd be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah tells us that he'll suffer, which was a shock to most Jews because they were looking for a conquering hero, not a suffering servant, that he'll pay for the sins of the world. But nobody qualified until the subject of this book came along until Jesus was born. And people go look at Jesus and say, well, tribe of Judah, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Okay, he qualifies genetically, but does he qualify morally? Did his life qualify? And they looked at him, they could find no fault in him. Nobody could ever find any fault in him. Then he enters Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody praises him. Hosanna, save us now, they said. They wanted salvation from the Romans. He wanted to save them from their sins. Oftentimes we want salvation from the wrong thing. We want deliverance from our financial problems, our health problems, our interpersonal relationship problems, but the real deliverance we need is the big one. What's going to happen to us after we die? Because we're all going to die. I hate to bring you bad news. Short of the rapture of the church, we're all going. And what I've learned is that, I don't know how it is, but that life picks up the pace. Each year, doesn't it? You know, it seems to go so slow when you're waiting on your driver's license. <laughs> can't, I mean, at least a permit, you know, driver's permit. It just takes forever. And then from 50 to 60, just like, whoa, what, what, what just happened there? <laughs> or fill in your own blank. 
Jesus proved by virtue of his words and his works that he was indeed the covenant and Messiah to Israel, the Savior of the world. That's what we needed. That's our ultimate need. We need to solve that sin problem. And we all have it. There's nobody in here that doesn't have it. If you think you hadn't sinned, then talk with us afterwards. We do have some medical professionals here that'll be happy to <laughs> refer you to the psychiatrist of your choice. <laughs> of course, we all have. We're not bragging about it. We don't rejoice in it, but it's real. We've all done things that set us apart from God's glory. And here comes Jesus. And he dies for us as a substitute. He takes all of our punishment upon himself. This book's going to talk about that. This, this book's going to explain to us that Jesus was greater than Moses. The Jews looked at Moses as an incredible leader, incredible spiritual man. And they're going to, the writer to the Hebrews is going to say Jesus is better than him. He was superior to him. What about angels? Oh, angels are incredible beings, aren't they? Uh, Jesus is superior to angels. The text is going to tell us he created angels. So, of course, he's superior. Well, what about his priesthood? You know, you have this ironic priesthood. That has to be the highest of all worship, right? Well, no, Jesus' priesthood's higher than that one. The old covenant, that, I mean, the, the Mosaic covenant, that's got to be the highest form of moral ethic that there is. And Jesus comes along and says, no, there's a new covenant. There's one even higher than that. And it's the covenant of love, basically. This is an incredible book. The text tells us that not all special revelation given to an individual was revelation meant to edify everyone. Sometimes special revelation came to a prophet or a person of God with a special message for a special purpose. But most of the time that God interacted with people and gave them revelation, it was meant for everyone. Abraham received direct special revelation from God although he didn't write his down, it was special for him. But Moses wrote down what Abraham, was, was revealed to Abraham. Isaiah received special revelation from God. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you name the prophets, they received direct revelation. Now Numbers chapter 12 verse 6 reveals that God would speak through dreams. And in past times he did. This happened with Jacob, with Joseph, with Pharaoh, with the Midianite judge, with Solomon, with Nebuchadnezzar even. And with Daniel, there were times that God spoke through visions. When one was awake, in other words, a dream he spoke when one was asleep. A vision was something somebody had when they were awake. With Abraham, he spoke with a vision. Daniel, Hosea, Zechariah, Habakkuk, Nahum. There were times that he spoke through storms and fire. With Moses, for example. And other times with a still, small voice. As with Elijah. However, this type of revelation was, in a sense, temporary and incomplete. God completed his revelation to man through his son. Now, at this point, I want to stop and pause and at least discuss very briefly something that is, is a subject of discussion in a lot of Islamic countries today. Because if you talk to missionaries in Islamic countries... I hear a story that comes up over and over again that, that an Islamic person far away from the gospel has had a dream about Jesus and has, because of that dream, sought out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm not, I, I don't know what their experience was. What I am saying is that's not normative. When that happens, that's a miracle that God performs. It's not something we can expect on a normative basis, so we still have to send out missionaries. We can't just say, well, God's going to speak to them in a dream. I don't have to go. 
Actually, the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. So while that's possible, and I don't doubt it, it's not normative, which means it's not common. The revelation that came through the prophets was, in a sense, temporary, and it was, in a sense, incomplete. God's completed revelation to mankind. His completed revelation came through his son. Now, here we have another point of chronology. This is not to argue that it was completed chronologically in the revelation of Jesus. For the entirety of the New Testament was written after Jesus died. In, in some cases, many decades after Jesus died. And since I've never personally seen Jesus, how do I know of him? How do I see Jesus? I see him through his word. So this is not discounting. The fact that we have God's completed message in, to us in his word. The word is recording Jesus as God's complete, completed message. So it's not chronological. It means that the pinnacle of God's revelation to man was in his son. Once you saw Jesus, you saw God. And we have written revelation, a written record of that. So you see why we respect the word. You see why Paul could write all scriptures God breathed and is profitable, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, that the person of God might be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, in the verses that follow here, in verses 2 through 4, we have seven facts about the Son of God that demonstrate his greatness and explain why the revelation of God through him was the highest revelation that God can give. And if you were with us during the study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, this is going to sound very familiar to what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1. In these last days he's spoken to us through his Son, now whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And having become as much better than angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The first of these perfections that the writer to the Hebrews explains to us is that the son has been appointed heir of all things. This is not speaking of airship so much in terms of material things, but an, an appointment to authority. A son who was the heir was going to be the authority. God the Father gave Jesus authority. The authority of the Father was the authority of the Son. He is heir of all things. First fact. The second fact, through him he made the world's. The term used here can be understood, he made the ages, literally. But it's unlikely that the restrictive use of that term Ionius is in view here. As with John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, and Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, this writer is probably referring to Jesus as the agent of creation. He's the agent of the Trinity that was directly responsible for creation. We know the Holy Spirit had a role in it as well. But Jesus is the one that we find out here and in John. Jesus is the one that actually spoke and everything came into existence. He's the actual agent of creation. 
Now think about that for just a moment, if you would. Just for a moment. It'll be worth it. Jesus is the creator. He's the creator of everything, of all of us. And at the same time, he voluntarily chose to be the savior of all of us. The creator didn't pick somebody else. When it came time to provide for salvation, the creator didn't say, I didn't do anything. I would like to have a relationship with these people that I created. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go find an angel that lives in some remote part of the universe that nobody knows their name. they got no family. Nobody's going to miss them. I'm going to sacrifice that being for salvation. No, the creator said, I'll sacrifice myself. I'll sacrifice myself. Now you think about that the next time you think nobody loves you. You think about that the next time you read the words, for God so loved the world. That's how much he loved you. He created you, and then he said, I'll sacrifice myself to save you. That's the love of a father. That's the love of Jesus Christ. He's the, crea he's the creator of creation, and he's the sacrifice for creation. The third fact is that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. F.F. Bruce put it well. He said, just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth, so in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men. I know it's hot outside right now, but just think back a few weeks. Maybe back into April when the high was in the 70s, and you went outside and that sun felt so good. That radiant energy from the sun warmed us, and it felt healthy, didn't it? Just to get some sun on our skin and to be outside in God's creation and interact with that creation. Jesus is the radiance of God's own glory. We'll talk about that more as the book unfolds. Fourth, and this is an important one, he's the exact representation of his nature. Literally, it reads, he's the character. He's the character of his being. It's the only time that this term is used in the New Testament. And it's very possibly even stronger than that term we encountered in Paul's letter to the Colossians, icon. He's the icon of the, of the invisible God. Here he's the character or the character of the invisible God in this passage. It means that he's the exact representation of God. The early church, the earliest of the church, had discussions about theology. The first argument in the early church about Jesus wasn't whether or not he was God. The first argument was whether or not he was really human or this was just some sort of emanation that they saw. They, they recognized that he was God. The text tells us. But they said, was he really human? Later in the history of the church, about 300 years after Christ, a man named Arius comes along out of North Africa and says, no, Jesus was man, but he wasn't God. And then at the Council of Nicaea, 325, the church got together and they affirmed what the church always held. And that's that Jesus was both man and God. That's what we call the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Just a $100 theological word for the fact that Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. He's the exact representation. 
I, I am in no way an artist, but I love good art. Perhaps like you, we can go to a museum, we might not have been able to paint a painting, but I can, see, I can realize a, a good one when I see it. In fact, Cindy and I have taken some art classes on, online just with art historians in their wonderful class. I love to see how a painting was designed and how you can look at certain aspects in the painting and see what the, the painter was trying to draw your eyes to. I don't know how to paint. Never had a painting class, but I appreciate good art. Well. I also understand that there are people that can tell a real painting from a forgery. The more you know the real painting, the more likely you are to be able to pick out the forgery. It's the same way with money. Again, I've never worked in a bank, but my sister-in-law did, and she said one of the ways that they trained her to pick out counterfeit money was to look at real money. And the more real money you count, and all of a sudden you come across the bill, and so, say, whoa, wait a minute, what's wrong with this one? And you put it next to it, say, I can't really see it, but there's something not right. Then they take it, and they analyze it, and they feel, well, that was a counterfeit bill. Well, Jesus is not a counterfeit. He's the original. So it's not like it's just a real good fake. This term tells us he's the exact representation of God. Fifth, Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus, God, did not create us and then abandon us. I know sometimes we get our view of God from our fathers. It's unfortunate, but sometimes we do. And I know some of you had fathers that left you at a very early age. My mom's dad left when she was three years old. She saw him one more time when she was about four. Never a birthday card. Never call at Christmas, never any kind of correspondence. From then until now, and I'm sure he's long dead. He helped create her, so to speak, but then he completely abandoned her. And some people think that of God. They think he's gonna create us, and then he's gonna abandon us. But that's not God, that's not Jesus. He didn't create and abandon, he created, he stayed. He's with us all the way through the good times and the bad times. And in the bad times, sometimes he might have to swat us on the hind end and get us back into line. But he does it because he loves us. He puts his comforting arm around us and says, I'm with you. I'm okay. You're okay. You're going to be okay. I'm with you. He's our sustainer. He didn't create an abandon. He created past tense, and he sustains us present tense. He interacts with his creation. That's why we can pray and ask him for a particular outcome. And we can know that if it's compatible with his will, if it's not going to hurt us, if it's consistent with who he is, he's going to bring it to pass. If we lived in a universe that was abandoned by their creator, then we may as well save our breath. We're wasting our time praying. We're just praying to ourselves. It's a psychological trick. And I'm, I'm really not in the mood for psychological tricks. I don't have time for that. If he abandoned us, he wouldn't be there to hear us. But he is there. He's listening. And he does interact with and sustain the universe. As long as I've talked about theism and deism today, I'm going to bring one more up, and that's pantheism. Pantheists often equate the universe with God, rendering him as an impersonal force. One of my best friends in the 80s 
men that I worked with, was a pantheist. And when he talked about God, he didn't talk about God so much. He wouldn't use the word God. He used the word universe. He would talk about universal laws, the laws of the universe. If this happens, then the universe is going to pay you back for that. You know, kind of a karma kind of thing. He didn't believe in a personal God. He believed in an impersonal force that works mechanically within the universe. I do good, good comes back to me because it's just a natural law. It's a universal law. I do bad and it comes back to me. Sometimes people call this the New Age movement. Shirley MacLaine was the New Age guru for a long time. At one time it's Deepak Chopra, Oprah in the New Hinduism. These are all typically New Agers that believe in an infinite or a finite impersonal God. And essentially this is the worldview of Buddhism this pantheistic thought. You gotta be careful of those things because sometimes they'll use Christian terms, but it's not Christianity. Christianity is a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. The sixth fact, and this is important too, all of them are important, he made purification for our sins. Through his redemptive work, Jesus has revealed the grace and love of God as well as his justice and righteousness. And finally, seventh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was enthroned. This is a solemn enthronement related back to the first fact on the list that he's the heir of all things. Jesus is in a position of honor and authority. These seven statements make it clear that Jesus is fully qualified to give ultimate revelation concerning God to God's creation. That's why we can say today, if you, Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he says that in the Upper Room Discourse, right before he gets crucified. Philip says, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I wish I could tell you that today of myself. I wish I said, if you, you've seen me, you've seen God. But I'd be lying, and you'd be laughing, wouldn't you? But Jesus could say it and mean it, and we wouldn't laugh. You know what we'd do? We'd fall on our knees and worship him. We'd fall on our face and thank him for what he's done for us. To summarize, throughout the course of human history, particularly Old Testament history, God revealed himself to the prophets, either directly or indirectly, who in turn communicated God's message to mankind. This revelation was progressive, but it's incomplete. In the person of Jesus Christ, God fully revealed himself to his creation. God has offered you an incredible gift through Jesus, his son. He's offered you freedom. He's offered you deliverance. He's offered you salvation. He desperately wants you to accept it. He doesn't want you to try to work for it because that would be fundamentally dishonest. None of us could earn it. None of us could ever deserve it. He wants you to receive it as a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. We thank you for our so great salvation. We thank you that you've fully revealed yourself to us through your Son. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.